Well, when our hearts aren't aligned with God, there are consequences. Disaster might come upon us, or our hearts just might kind of grow cold. Either way, there are consequences for our actions. And in the gloom, we really can't be the people that we want to be, if that's what we're living in. We can't be the people that God invites us to be. But then there are other times when bad things come anyway, because bad things happen to good people. It's not like every bad consequence is a one-to-one correlation with something that we've done. This world is broken. The world lacks justice. The world lacks mercy. But even though that's true, who broke the world? Was it somebody else? That's impossible. It was us. We did it. We broke it. That's how the world got into a place where it lacks justice and mercy, because we lack justice and mercy. The reason the world is broken is because we broke it, and that brokenness has now infiltrated our own lives. Now, we all want to live justly. We, we like fairness. We're all about it when it comes around. And when we hear of injustice, we don't like it. We don't want people to live in injustice. We try and fix what we can. We also all want to live with mercy. Like, we want to love people well. We want to be the people who can forgive. No one says, I want to grow up to be a person who will never be able to forgive somebody. Like, we all want to be compassionate. We all want to be loving. But if we're honest, we're just not like that. We're not as just as we think we are. I mean, do you really want to know the stories of, of everything that goes into making a smartphone? Of, of how probably the product that we buy keeps people oppressed? I don't want to know those stories. I want to stay completely ignorant of that. We're not as merciful as we think either. I mean, we say we care about the poor. We might even, as a church, or individually, give money to reach out to the community. But how many of us have actually had conversations with people who are sleeping rough in Charlton on our doorstep? How many of them have been in our homes? The hope in the gloom of our own consequences, or just in the gloom of the broken kind of way of the world, in both situations, our hope is in God. And this is the main theme of Micah. If our hope is placed in the Lord, if that's where our hope is first, then we can truly live out in justice and in mercy, the kind of way that we want to live. So the next 10 weeks, we're going to be in Micah. And as Liz said, this is going to be a bit of an overview to give a, a broad picture of what this book is about, to tell us where we're going. So first, let's just talk about um, the book itself. So the book was written around 750, 720 BC, so a long time ago, short version. What was happening then? Well, a couple things. Uh, Israel, yeah, I'm busting out the maps, don't worry. Um, Israel is, uh, if you can see it, this little area here. Here's Turkey, here's Saudi Arabia. So Israel is this little section here. Um, this is a zoomed in version. Originally, the kingdom of, of Israel was all the blue and all the yellow. But there was a point in the nation's history where those kingdoms broke away from each other, and so it was a divided kingdom. So now, by the time Micah's writing, there's two separate kingdoms. The northern kingdom is generally called Israel. The southern kingdom is generally called Judah. But originally, it was all Israel. It was all God's people. The reason, and, and so by the time Micah has talked, uh, is, is speaking here, the north had already kind of forsaken God at this point. They were already worshiping other gods. They are already kind of looking just like the nations who are around them, which is the one thing that God told them over and over. I'm giving you this land not to be like the other nations, but to be different. And the northern kingdom has decided they didn't want to be like that. And so God, after hundreds of years of relenting from bringing kind of punishment on them, eventually said, okay, fine. Like, I'm not going to let my people stay worshiping some other god. And so uh, the way that I'm going to punish you is these outside nations, the ones that you want to be like, are going to come in and kind of take you over. Either they're going to kill you, they're going to take you captive, or you'll end up being super poor because you have to give them loads of money so they don't kill you, or you'll just um, get some kind of plague and die. So fun stuff for the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is where Micah was. And people in the south uh, thought they were better than people in the north. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> 
They thought they were better. They were like, well, you know, that's the northern kingdom, though. Like, we're the southern kingdom. This is where Jerusalem is. This is like God's country. You know, surely, like, God's, God will be good to us. But Micah says, you're not living in alignment with God, and you're refusing to change. This is like hundreds and hundreds of years of God over and over telling his people this through his prophets. And so outside nations are going to come and destroy you. It's not going to be a natural disaster. It's not going to be nobody's fault. This is your fault, is what Micah tells him over and over again. But, he, but in telling him that, he's pleading with these people, saying, look, this is going to happen if you don't change. Which is basically saying, change, so it doesn't happen. Just realign your lives with God. But people then were just as stubborn as people today. So that didn't really work out. That's uh, a little bit about Micah. What's, what's the deal with Micah? So Micah, uh, the name Micah, or Micaiah, as it might have be in, in some Bibles, is basically a sentence name. There's some of those you know, in the Bible that are like really weird names or sentence names. His is, who's like Yahweh? Yahweh is God's own name that he revealed for himself, the divine name. When, when Moses met God, the, first way, the, the way, first way God described who he was when Moses wanted to know his name was this word Yahweh, or in uh, older translations it could be translated Jehovah, just different ways of saying the same Hebrew words together. And throughout the book of Micah, we continually get descriptions of this Yahweh, this God, as the God who honors his promises, even when his people aren't faithful. And so the question keeps on coming back, who is like this God? Is another way of saying, there's nobody like Yahweh. He is completely different, completely other, completely different than everything else you've known. Now, Micah himself doesn't mention his parents. Like The, the book doesn't start with Micah, son, and so-and-so. It just says Micah, who's from this other town. So what that probably means is that Micah, Micah's parents really didn't matter. Like Nobody knew who they were, so why would you mention people who you don't know? So he basically came from nobodies. And he also, he didn't come from Jerusalem. He came from Morasheth, which is like a town 25 miles away from Jerusalem. So he's an outsider to Jerusalem, talking to the people in Jerusalem, telling them to change, and basically a person who's from nobody. And this outsider prophet uh, was big on justice. Because he saw hardworking people being reduced to poverty by the rich. That's what he saw over and over and over again. We'll see some of that in a bit. And because Micah had a passion for God, he couldn't stand by and let that continue. Just as God can't stand by and let that continue. Now, him speaking out against the rich probably didn't win him any friends. The other prophets and priests of the time were collaborating with corrupt leaders. So there's like three different levels of corruption. One is you have corrupt prophets, you have corrupt uh, politicians, you have corrupt, like, wealthy landowners, and all of them are kind of working together to basically get what they want for themselves. And this unholy trinity kind of spilled over to the rest of the people. And basically, as it goes in the Old Testament, as well in our culture, as the leaders are, so go the people. So if the leaders are corrupt, that kind of corruption spills over. And now all the other people who are being corrupted uh, by these leaders and also being oppressed are ended up, their hearts are being corrupted as well. Um, this is what some of that corruption would look like. Prophets of the rich would preach God's grace at the expense of his justice. So basically, they're basically saying God's love, and he's only love, and he's only ever going to love you in this kind of really perfect way, no matter what you do. So if you use the system to advance yourself at the expense of others, God doesn't care. He loves you. God bless you. If you, if you uh, sleep around, God doesn't care. You're blessed. If you're getting drunk, God doesn't care. You're blessed. You're in Jerusalem. You're rich also, so stay comfortable. Don't worry about it. And that's what all the priests were saying. That's like how the people were being led. Now, these corrupt people looked really religious on the outside because they knew better than to completely stop worship services. So they still went to worship services. They gave lavish gifts. 
they would like uh, kind of give really, really showy gifts to basically try and buy off God from punishing them. But God can't be bought or manipulated, and he cares more for the poor than he does for showy worship services. Thank God, right? Now, Micah, instead of being a prophet of the rich, was a prophet of Yahweh. And Micah's sermons have a lot to say about justice. He said there's judgment for sin, and there's grace for the humble. And Micah was filled with a passion for the oppressed. And we know, actually, what happened through Micah's ministry in the other Old Testament history books. People actually did listen to Micah for a time. The king, Hezekiah, changed his mind and actually repented and relented. And that changed uh, different policies in the nation of Israel. And so like for like about 100-ish, 100 to 200-ish years, like Israel did change for a bit. And God didn't punish them. He relented, as he said he was going to. But eventually, all the disasters that Micah talks about um, did eventually come to pass because people are stubborn and we don't like to change. And God brought judgment on his corrupt people and these outside nations took over Israel. So that's a bit of the history of kind of where we find ourselves, what Micah's speaking into. Um, as a book, it's a collection of sermons. So it's not like, uh, it's not meant, Micah didn't write Micah in order to be read like in one sitting as a story, like beginning to end. Basically a collection of sermons over his entire ministry. And so the best way to read it isn't chronologically as if like, here's the beginning, here's the middle, here's the end. Uh, it's more of um, through these cycles. The best way to, might be to understand it as a pattern of cycles. So Micah writes, uh, threat of judgment and promised hope. There's doom and there's hope. And like, you're doing this, so God's going to come and do this. But if you don't do this, this is what it could look like. And he does, there's like three of those cycles. So we're, we're going to hear similar themes kind of come up over and over as we go through this book. Uh, and the threat of judgment, of course, is if you don't change, I'm going to send these outside nations to conquer you. And these are bad dudes. We'll, get to, we're, we'll talk about the Assyrians, these outside people, in a moment. They are not nice people. They're not going to be like, oh, well, let's just hang out together. No, they're going to kill you and maybe burn you if you're lucky. Kill you first. But there is hope. Because as it is with God, there is grace for those who humble themselves to receive it. And there can be hope, even if there's doom to come. And so this, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the, these major themes of hope that we're going to see in Micah. Because this is where I think, especially in our context, how it really uh, applies easily. I mean, if you think of what doom could be like in the future, whatever that might be, what, what is like future threats? You think of environmental concerns, think of like, Brexit, think of any kind of political thing, uh, you think of what is it going to be like for our kids, you think of my job, my paycheck, all, there's all sorts of possibilities that's going to happen in our future, and they're not all going to be good, that's a promise, like our future isn't going to be perfect all the time. And so here's where hope comes through for us. The first is this theme of remnant. In Micah 2.12, uh, God is, is saying this to his people. It says, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob, so all of the nation of Israel, all of God's people. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. And then at the end of Micah, in Micah 7, 18 through 20, it says, who is a God like you? There's that Micah, that's basically Micah's name again. Who is a God like, who, who is like Yahweh? Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin? and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You'll tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You'll be faithful to Jacob. You'll show love to Abraham. You'll be faithful to your people. You'll show love to your people as you pledged on oath to our ancestor in days long ago. 
So what this means is that Israel is supposed to be all of God's people, but not all of God's people are God's people. There's going to be a remnant that God is going to preserve for himself to worship him. That will be faithful to him. And they're not going to be perfect. They'll need their sins forgiven, but God is going to be faithful to them. And I think knowing that this is, off, this is how God works through all the Old Testament, through this remnant, through, a, through a, a small group of people, is maybe a hopeful thing for us here in Trollton as a small church or to the, to the UK. The idea that this is how God often works is through a small remnant. I mean, all of Manchester today, less than 2% of people are going to a church that's going to be talking about the gospel, that's going to be caring about Jesus. That's 98% of people who do not want to or care about it. At its best, Manchester was like maybe 8%. That's horrible. That's like when we thought everybody went to church. When we thought everybody went to church in Manchester, like 8% of people went to church. So what we're doing as a church now is we're that small remnant. We're digging out a foundation. You dig out a foundation for a long time, and there's not much to see. But after you dig out that foundation, after you put that work in, then, Lord willing, there is a structure that could be built on top. And we know it's not about numbers that determine strength. It's not about our talents or our gifts. It's about how the Lord works through his people. And he works through purifying us, through us being his remnant. And what we, what we get to do, even in this pub, even as a small group of people, what we get to do is we get to show the glory of the Lord. That's what the remnant gets to do. It might be small in number, but it's glorious, not because of how amazing we are, how many there are, but because God is with us. God is present here with us. The Lord is here, and he always does big things with small numbers. I mean, how will he ultimately forgive the sins of people that the remnant talked about here? How, how, will, how will sin be forgiven? How will God be faithful to people who are unfaithful to him? Well, it's because the remnant leads to another big theme, which is the Messiah. Out of the remnant comes King Jesus, the rule of the Messiah. Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So God is preserving this small group of people, this remnant that's going to be able to survive even when the worst kind of catastrophes come. And out of that remnant, the Messiah will come. The rule of the Messiah. We'll talk a little bit about the um, Messiah here. Uh, yeah, there we are. Um, Messiah means king. We've talked about that a bit. Um, just another word for saying king. And this goes back to the promise that God gave David when Israel was just a baby nation. David was uh, Israel's second king. And God gave a promise to David, said, there is going to be a king on your throne who will rule forever and ever and ever. And his rule will be unlike everything else. And all the nations will come to him. And this is how God is making that promise come true. God was leaving a shadow of what Jesus' reign as king was going to be like. Now, God's plan was always something bigger than some geographical boundary like Israel. It's meant to cover the whole earth. And the Messiah who will come, the king who will come, that's Jesus. Is out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And so what does this rule look like? What does he do? Here's Micah 5, 4 through 5. This Messiah, this, this ruler, this king, will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. That's us. We will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. So this Messiah is going to shepherd his flock. He's going to care for us. Sheep need caring for. They die otherwise. I don't think they... Actually, I don't... If only Abby was here, she could tell us what happens to sheep if they don't have shepherds. They'd probably die. Like, if not, it's not a good life, right? Okay, Elspeth knows. She's in Northern Ireland. She knows. So, <laughs> 
So sheep need caring for. Without, without a shepherd, what, what are we? That's one thing. Jesus had massive compassion on his people because he saw there were people without a shepherd, sheep without a shepherd. There's no hope for sheep without a shepherd. Now contrast that with the experience that Micah's audience was having. The people who were ruling over them were taking advantage of them, were stealing their lands, were stealing their inheritance, were taking their money. That's not how shepherds ought to rule. What about in our experience? Do we have faith in institutions to work on our behalf? No, not at all. Our hope is not in the government institutions. Our hope is not in, in political institutions. Our hope is in the rule of Messiah taking care of us in spite of what this world is like. And he rules in the strength of the Lord, not in human strength, as opposed to Micah's time, where people are just trying to get whatever they can get for themselves, which is the same exact as our time, people trying to get whatever we can get for ourselves in our own strength. That's a different way that the Messiah rules. He rules in the strength of the Lord. And those who are under the rule of this king, they live securely. Unlike Micah's situation, these outside nations are going to come in. That's not a very secure. Are we going to be taken over today or tomorrow? Oh, I don't know. That's not a very secure way to live. Or our situation, right? What, what is Brexit going to mean? I don't know. Like, does anybody know? No. We don't know what it's going to be. Like. Jobs, living situations, the environment. But if our rule is found under the Messiah, under the king, then we will live securely no matter what may happen. And the greatness reaches everywhere. Being under this rule means you're not only part of something bigger than yourself, but you're part of something, the biggest thing this world has ever seen. That's what you get to be a part of by being under this Messiah's rule. People being cared for, people living securely. Who wouldn't want to experience this? Who wouldn't want people that we care about to experience that? I mean, what if Trollton had a ruler that cared for his people instead of taking from them? What if Trollton had some kind of, of, of benevolent uh, loving ruler that gave security instead of anxiety. Surely we want people to know more about this king. And even when something like invading armies come in, even when that happens, and it will, the Messiah is still our peace. Let me give you a personal account of one of Assyria's kings. Uh, this is him talking himself up. He says, I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I carried off prisoners, possession, oxen, and cattle from them. I burnt many captives from them. I captured many troops alive. From some, I cut off their arms and hands. From others, I cut off their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one pile of heads. I hung their heads up on trees around the city. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. I raised, destroyed, burnt, and consumed the city. This is what's going to happen. And, and even when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses, the Messiah will be our peace. Assyrians will come. They will. But we can have a peace that transcends a kind of hopeless circumstance through the rule of Messiah, King Jesus. And lastly, uh, another big theme of hope is, so we have the rule of the Messiah, but then we also have the presence of God which is talked about either in um, terms of temple or mountain. This is Micah 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. 
all the nations may walk in the names of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So the temple is the highest of mountains, exalted above everything. There's nothing more powerful, stronger than God's temple. The way um, the high places, like mountains and things like that, is where people would worship their gods. Basically, that's where you put like a place of worship to other gods. But the God, but God's mountain and God's temple is above all of them, above everything else, and above them all. And on this high mountain, we have this river that flows upward. Even though the God's on top of the mountain, there's this upward flowing river, this stream of people to it. Of people from all kinds of nations, all kinds of backgrounds, languages, ethnicities, gender orientation, political affiliation, sexual orientation, they're all coming to God, finding justice and mercy with him, asking him to direct their steps. They're all giving up everything they have, their own plans, their own ideas of what hope, justice, and mercy look like to follow along with God's path. And as the people are flowing in, the word is resounding outward. People in, word outward, so that more people might flow in, so that the word might flow out even more. And God is just towards everyone, regardless of background. That means, in justice, swords get turned to spades. Spears are now pruning hooks. The instruments that we use for war are now being used for peace through the presence of God. And what are these instruments, what are they making? That was something that used to kill someone is now a spade, and it's making a vine. Everyone's sitting under their own vine. It's like the Old Testament way of saying perfection, contentment, which, you know, that sounds pretty good. Imagine if you had your own vine, your kind of never-ending supply of wine for yourself. That sounds pretty good. Now, when the weather is good, um, like it has been maybe like last week, you see loads of people in Charlton, all of a sudden no one has a job and everyone's like working or everyone's out there like drinking, having a glass of wine. It's a symbol of enjoyment, it's fulfillment. And that's what we get in God's presence. Now other people may walk in the name of other gods, but for the remnant, those who are enjoying the rule of the Messiah and the presence of God, we walk in the name of Yahweh. And our hope is that God will preserve those who accept his grace, even in the worst of times. We're small, but it's God's remnant. The Lord is purifying us, making us into the humans that we want to be, directing our spiritual longings to where it ought to be. And instead of looking forward to this wonderful Messiah, as in Micah's time, they got to look forward to this Messiah, we get to look back. We get to look back and understand in a new light how this Messiah rules, because we have evidence of it in the word, in justice, and in mercy. Now, justice is setting things right. When we see things that are wrong, we must be a people of setting things right because that's what God does. It's like helping fight an unjust system that makes it difficult for people to find a place to live. It's an unjust, broken system. And we have to be a people, when that system comes up, especially if there's people in our congregation, we have to be a people who are going to fight that. Our mercy is having the power to punish, but instead using it for forgiveness or compassion. And we're all looking forward to the day when all things will be made new. That's what our hope needs to be. Just like those in Micah's day, we're looking forward to where heaven and earth will be one, when the king's rule will be complete. The last book of the Bible gives us this image of John, who's writing Revelation, has this vision from God of what the new heavens and earth look like, because heaven isn't our hope. The new heavens and earth is our hope. The last book of the Bible says this heavenly city comes out, comes down, and, and meets the world, and it becomes one. And uh, the way that it's described is like this marriage celebration, like this marriage feast, this like week-long kind of crazy party. And as they're partying, seeing this heaven and earth thing become one, there's a voice that calls out, says, look, God's dwelling place is now with his people. God will live with them. No more tears, no more death, no mourning. 
No crying, no pain. This is the new creation that we're on the path towards. And Jesus, our king, from his throne, while this is going on, belted out, look, I am making everything new now. So Jesus now is making everything new. This new creation is coming to fruition of seeing heaven and earth as one. And that's what it means to be on God's mission. In Manchester as in heaven, that's why we say that. It's what it means. We get to reflect what that new creation will be like now as we wait for it to come. Because if our hope is this new creation, that's really our hope, but that's really what we set our eyes on. And that allows us to live with justice and mercy now. And it gives us a picture of what that justice and mercy looks like now. And only if we have this big, massive hope in the king and his coming kingdom, that's the only way we get to live with the justice and mercy we ought to in a world that is not whole yet. And this is the kind of life that God is inviting us to. And let's end with this invitation. Because that's all great information, but like, so what? Like, then how should we live? Well, in the midst of God telling his people why judgment is coming, God's like, look, it's simple, really. Like, I've told you this over and over and over again, people, like generations of people. It's really simple. This is what it looks like to be part of my kingdom. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? This is it. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. God is just. God is merciful. And because of that, he requires us to be just and merciful. If we're going to live in his kingdom, to be part of his family, if we're about his rule, his presence, to have the hope of all things being made new, that actually being our hope, and not just something that we say, but really being our hope, then today that looks like living in justice and mercy. This isn't an easy thing because we really aren't prone to justice and mercy ourselves, or at least not in the, the level that we ought to be. And that's one thing that Micah is concerned about. In his time, uh, in, in Micah 2.2, he says, this is talking about the unjust actions that were going on. Um, they covet fields. These are the leaders. These are great leaders for people in Micah's day. They covet fields. They seize them. The houses, they take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. People are out to better themselves at the expense of others finding legal loopholes to do whatever they want. In Micah 3, this is what the Lord says, As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but are prepared to rage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. They're just, the prophets are just out for themselves as well. Who's going to give me the money? Who's going to give me the food? Who's going to give me the wine? Those are the people I'm going to interact with. Everyone is set up for themselves and their hope is misplaced. And if any verse is a verse for where we are in our own neighborhood and probably for ourselves, it's Micah 2.11. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the profit for this people. Now, wine and beer is, is fine to drink. But if that's our hope, satisfaction in the moment, get what we can, that's a sad life. It's a prophet. Micah is a prophet for self-obsessed people. We are this people. If we had plenty of wine and beer, we'd just be easily satisfied. And injustice and lack of mercy would just keep going on our doorstep. It's difficult enough to want to live for justice and mercy with their own incomplete hearts, but even more difficult to live with justice and mercy in a broken world that doesn't seem to care. Because everyone can feel like, or everything can feel like a struggle, and it's tiring. Just know that Micah 6.8 means, that's not Micah 6.8, <laughs> means you aren't called to change the world. You aren't even called to change Charlton. So if you feel like, oh, how can we even begin to do this? You can't. You can't. I'll just leave it there. But there are people who God has put into your life that you're connected to. 
There are people who will experience mercy in a different way and justice in a different way and love in a different way, humility in a different way because they're connected to you. If 20 of us, if, if all of Redeemers, about 20-ish people, if we all live that out with the few people that God has in our lives, that's what changes a neighborhood. That's what changes a city. And a city like Manchester that changes can change, has a possibility of being part of changing the world. And what if we could embrace justice and mercy in all circumstances, even when it's difficult? Because sometimes we feel like, oh, let me just sort this out, and then I can like, you know, be a part of that whole justice and mercy thing. But when it's difficult, hope ceases to be some abstract future thing and can become a really real and present thing if we live into that hope. If we have the right hope, we can be freed from being victims of circumstance, and we can act justly and love mercy. And that's exactly what Micah is about, hope justice, and mercy. And we can have hope. We can live with justice and mercy because that's what God's rule and presence looks like. This is best described through what Jesus did, has done on the cross. This is what the people in Micah's time were looking forward to, and this is what we, in now in our time, God's people are able to look back on. We need to understand first why we need justice and mercy for ourselves. Because before this is a plan for other people, this is what has happened for us. We need justice. We see the injustices of this world and we're rightly angered. People who are far away, um, who, who are, are bombing churches during Easter, like in Sri Lanka, or people who are on our doorstep or are sleeping rough. Their only hope is a broken system. We need justice in our own lives, and people have wronged us. There's all sorts of reasons why we need justice going on, but we're also part of the broken system ourselves because we perpetuate these unjust systems. What about people who might have a different gender or sexual orientation than your own? Are you compassionate in your hearts towards them? If so, does that compassion just end in good thoughts? Are you actually compassionate in actions and in words and in loving them well? We cry out justice when someone wrongs us, but when, when, uh, when we're in the wrong, we cry for mercy. We need both, and we can't stand under that ourselves. It's too weighty. And this is where the cross comes in, because the cross is where God's justice and his mercy kiss. The cross is the ultimate symbol of God being a just God and the right punishment being dealt out. And it's the ultimate symbol of God being a merciful God with him taking on that punishment. John Stott has a great way of saying this. He says, sin is when we put ourselves in God's place and God's mercy and his grace is him putting himself in ours. And at the cross, the Messiah's life ended. His life was broken. But this Messiah also rose again because death couldn't keep him down, because he is God himself. And though he's able to drink from the cup of, the, of wrath, of punishment that we deserve, now when we drink, we get to drink the cup of the new heavens and new earth, the cup of the new covenant. What we get is forgiveness where our past sins aren't held against us. Our past sins put them to the cross, but our past sins now are forgiven and they're not held against us. We get new hearts, now with the ability to actually live in justice and mercy the way we really want to. And we get a new hope in the Messiah, our King, who's ruling now and eventually is bringing this new kingdom, this new heavens and earth in, into reality. And only when our hope is set on God, on his justice and mercy, can we truly live out in our own lives justice and mercy, no matter what our circumstances are. And that's what we get to reflect on as we come to the table.
as we celebrate Lord's Supper together. This is a symbol of Jesus' death and his resurrection. On the cross, God's justice and his mercy kissed in the person and work of Jesus. And so how we celebrate at communion is Michael's going to sing some songs. We take a piece of bread out, dip it into the wine or the juice. And who should come and eat? Well, basically, anyone whose hope is in Jesus. You don't need to be a member of this particular church, but a member of God's family. If Jesus isn't your hope yet, please don't eat and drink and just hold off for now. We don't want you to, to do something, um, do some kind of action where you actually don't believe in. Now, if you haven't done something like this before, maybe this is the day to take that first step. Because this table is for someone who's done this a million times or someone who's only done it the first time. It's open for everyone who welcomes Jesus' love and who wants to surrender to his rule. So our sin held him there at the cross that put him to death, but God's love cannot be stopped. And now, for everyone who has this hope in Jesus, we have new life. So when we come up, let's think of two things. Let's think of the justice side of what it took for God to remove our sins from us. It took everything he could give. But on the mercy side, on the grace side, is the joy that, uh, that now God has for us who live in his life.